Hey there. Hope you had a nice Thanksgiving. Maybe you got a few days off work as well. If you're a parent, you may be more than ready at this point for your kids to go back to school after their holiday break. And that's what I want to talk about today. Schools and who decides how they're run. You're stepping over your line. You don't need to breathe for me. Diversity is a code word for anti-white. We are pulling our son today from this school district. Who will be taking responsibility? Let's take a recess. The board will take a recess. Over the past few years, local school board meetings have become ground zero for intense debates over so-called culture war issues. The pandemic, gender, race, just to name a few. Thank you. Your we time failed. is up. Your we time have is no up. one. Your time is up. My time is never up because I am a parent. And that frustration has motivated some parents to get off the sidelines and run for school board positions themselves in races that have become more overtly partisan than ever. My guest this week is CNN correspondent Audie Cornish. She's the host of the new podcast, The Assignment. She spoke to two such parents about what motivated them to run for office and what they hope to do now that they're in power. From CNN, this is One Thing. I'm David Ryan. Hey, Audie. So your new podcast is called The Assignment. And after I heard the first episode, I knew I wanted to talk to you because you covered something that I've been wanting to talk about on the show for a while, how school boards and school board meetings have gotten so politically charged and what motivates a parent to run for a position on the board. But what I found really fascinating about your reporting was that this is not necessarily a new phenomenon, right? No, no. Um, We ended up focusing on the kind of mid to late 70s. But instead of for instance, the Boston busing crisis, right, which was over an integration program in that school system, we heard about this little story out of Kanawha County. We feel that in no way can this type of literature benefit and further our children's education. It was in West Virginia, and it became nationally known in around 1974 for this kind of massive controversy over textbooks. We do not want any teacher to assign any of this material at any time for any of our children to read. Just like a couple hundred textbooks that uh, the school board was going to approve for the school library and, and for use. And at the time, these were books that were by black and brown authors. We absolutely refuse to have the liberal point of view pushed upon our children. In Kanawha County, West Virginia, there was violence today in the continuing demonstrations against the use of controversial textbooks in the schools. The Charleston Gazette said in an editorial today, the county is near anarchy. And it ended with actually some bombings of some school structures. Shattered windows, chairs scattered about. What was left of Mrs. Catherine Albright's first grade room at Midway Elementary School at Campbell's Creek, West Virginia? And it's good to remember sometimes that even when we think things are pretty bad, they can be worse. <laughs> and and the goal is not to repeat history. Right. And so today, over the past few years that we've been kind of seeing these videos, you know, parents at a local community center shouting into like kind of low budget microphones. But what what kind of is behind this wave of anger and frustration that we've been seeing? 
Well, this is an instance where I wanted to follow up on a story that you would have seen in the headlines a lot. And I think they were very captivating and sort of tense images that we all saw of these school board members just yelling. But a lot of times, you know, in the heat of the moment, we had sort of reduced them to only the yelling. One of the things we heard in the reporting is uh, the idea that education and public schools in particular are kind of America's dinner table. And it is a place where we all eventually in one way or another kind of have to sit down and eat. And it's where we share values. It's where we bump up against each other. It's where our values bump up against each other. And so I think that what we wanted to do was find some school board members who had kind of gotten on board with the politics of this moment. I actually think we had one of our best starts to the school year yet. So I'm very happy with that. And April, what about you? Um, I'd have to agree. I think that we are off to a great start. Um... And I came at this thinking, I want to know who these people are. What is it that they want? How do they hear how they've been received? And now that they're seeking power and in some cases winning it, what do they want to do with that power? Audie, before the break, you said you wanted to talk to school board members who had gotten on board with the politics of this moment. Who did you find and what did they tell you? So we spoke to, in this case, two school board members. One was April Carney. She's from um, Duval County in Florida. And the other one was Amy Covey of Lansing, Kansas. You know, one of the things we wanted to do was really um, hone in on the people who were expressly political in their desire for change. Uh, this is April. Um, I, I have to say, um, you know, we were we were only closed for a short period of time here in Florida from March till the end of that school year. And uh, I have to say that was just enough for me to get a tidbit of how hard it is to be an educator. So April is interesting because she's from Florida, where Governor Ron DeSantis has really made education and uh, so-called parents' rights a core part of his public agenda. Florida is the state where woke goes to die. And he's gone as far as to actually back candidates at the school board level. Oh, like he's getting involved. Yeah, he's actually getting involved. Well, I think that, you know, the reason why he and the first lady decided to do this is because people just simply weren't paying attention to down ballot races. But it's not that it's apolitical. Like we are Um, looking at a political movement. uh, Yeah. I mean, well, I think it's it's a parent movement is what it is. And it's not that there's never been politics right at the school board level. It's that, you know, in this hyperpartisan moment, it's like witnessing that transition happening where people were, you know, in this case, signing a pledge to be part of his agenda, to be a candidate that also represents the governor. Amy, can I ask you about this as well? You ran explicitly as a conservative. Yes. The idea that politics were not already in that and that it's bringing it in, I would disagree with because it has already been in there. The NEA, 
Um, the teachers unions across the country are highly political. Right. This is the National Education Association. So to you, it is about bringing, I mean, you have an ideology as well. You're not, you're saying that you're not pretending you don't. No, I'm not. I'm not pretending I don't. But what I would like in that ideology as a conservative viewpoint of that is to keep the politics out of schools. We also uh, drew a line in the sand and said, you know, in the state of Florida, a parent should be able to send their kid to kindergarten without having woke gender ideology shoved down their throat. We're not going to have some first grader be told that, you know, yeah, your parents named you Johnny. You were born a boy, but maybe you're really a girl. So in Florida earlier this year, we kind of saw this so-called don't say gay bill, which is what the critics call it. And, you know, Governor Ron DeSantis is very involved in pushing that. So what did the parents, especially the one who's in Florida, have to say about that that legislation and, and how they kind of approach those subjects being brought up in class? Yeah, that's a great example. It's known colloquially as the don't say gay bill. Um, Its language aims to kind of put limits and give guidance on how and when and if at all gender ideology is taught about in classrooms. I think that a five-year-old who still believes in Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny doesn't need to be taught about gender ideology. When I talked about this with these parents, This was an area where they felt quite strongly. The idea that gender identity was being focused on too much. All we want to do is have school be a place where you're focused on reading, writing, arithmetic. We're focusing on all of these other issues that could be addressed at home with the parents. And you get the sense that they don't necessarily believe that certain kinds of values should come from schools um, and should be taught by schools, which in, in some ways is ironic because so much of what public education is, is socialization and the sharing of values and teaching people communal values. Um, So I think this gets at some of the, the fractures there. And I want to add one more thing, which is that, you know, you'll hear the voice of a student who we kept anonymous uh, because because they're a minor, because they're trans and because we know, you know, how difficult life can be for that community. How is it that my existence is a threat to other people? Because my existence, my identity, my sexuality, my gender, that's me and The same goes for everybody else in this world. But what this person said was, you know, I don't feel safe hearing this kind of language. I don't feel safe hearing this kind of rhetoric. Who's going to represent me? Um, And even though the way our show is structured, you know, we weren't spending a lot of time with that voice. We were focused on these parents. It's like I wanted them to hear it and I wanted them to respond to it. And I think... The fact that we can't even express that in schools where we're supposed to be safe, where we are encouraged to grow and be ourselves, I just think that that is completely unacceptable. What do you hear in the voice of a student like that? I think that we're putting these kids under a microscope. And I actually think that by drawing more attention to 
the struggles they're going through, it's actually putting more pressure on them. I have a friend of mine who, whose son is gay and has come home and said, Mom, it's all day, every day. It's nonstop. I feel like I'm being singled out, and I really just want to be with my peers and go about my school day. And so um, I think there's a way to be inclusive without making it a spectacle. Um, and I think that's what it's become. And in turn, it's actually having a negative effect on these, on these kids that are struggling with their gender identity. And I think if there was less focus on it during the school day and more focus on academics and just being a kid, I think it might lessen, lessen the pressure for her. I feel, I feel for her. I do empathize with her. So in the end, do these parents, they see themselves as political candidates, as parents uh, running for school board, something in between? Where did they kind of fall on that? I asked both the parents this question, and it's pretty clear that they felt like they somehow had no choice, that the atmosphere in public education to them is political, to them as a liberal bent, and therefore they needed to be explicitly conservative in the way they presented themselves to voters to kind of signal, hey, over here, kind of, I'm, I understand your concerns. Right, and this is what I'm for. Yeah, but you can hear them wrestling with that about whether or not that is a good thing. I mean, I've got kids under the age of five, mm-hmm. and I turn on the news and I look out in the world and I do see, like, conflicts and history, and they need a bunch of critical thinking skills, Mm -hmm. which I very much hope to give them. But it sounds like you guys are saying, like, don't do that in school. Oh, no, I'm a a huge... And that's kind of sending them out in the world being like, wait, (laughs) do we talk about LGBT issues? What do you think about racism? Having more critical thinking in the classroom. I think that's where we're lacking. We need more critical thinking. We need to be teaching our kids to think for themselves and to have their own opinions, and we need to be supportive of that. Unless a parent thinks it's inappropriate, then they can make a phone call to a tip line, right? And say, I didn't like the way that went down. Well, and that's a discussion to be had between the school board and the parent. But we need to be having these discussions. And it's it needs to happen. And it's uncomfortable, but we need to be having discussions. I welcome parents' commentary. We have to be able to listen to one another so that we can come together. It's the only way it's ever going to happen. You know, I want to add one more thing, which is that in a way, this is the beginning of the assignment, meaning we want to hear from people. We want to hear from listeners. If if you have a story, if you're listening and it's you're like, I have a story, it affects my community. There's something I'm talking about in my WhatsApp groups. We also want you to call us. You know, I want you to call me and tell me. Um, we've actually set up a voicemail box so you can leave a message at 202 854 8802. But you also can record a voice memo on your phone and email it to us at the assignment CNN at gmail.com. We're going to be going through those, um, you know, looking for more stories going forward. All right. You have your assignment, folks. Uh. <laughs> See, it works. <laughs> That's fascinating stuff. Uh, Audie Cornish, thanks so much. Thank you. One Thing is a production of CNN Audio. This episode was produced by Paola Ortiz and me, David Rind. Matt Dempsey is our production manager. Fez Jamil is our senior producer. 
Greg Peppers is our supervising producer, and Abby Fentress-Swanson is the executive producer of CNN Audio. Special thanks this week to Haley Thomas, Dan DeZula, and Alex Manasseri. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next Sunday. Talk to you then.